We're continuing our walk through the book of Revelation, and as a quick summary, uh, we started off going through the first chapter, uh, which talked about the fact that the book of Revelation, as we said, is, is literally an unveiling of God to us, God revealing himself to us, revealing his love for us, telling us his plans for eternity. Now, um, I don't know how many of you guys have ever worked for uh, a corporation or a huge corporation or something like that. Anyone? Okay. And, and sometimes you'll get a memo saying, here's what's going to happen in a couple of days. You know, either we're going to be opening a new store, we're going to be relocating, we're going to be starting a new project, or we're going to be, unfortunately, laying some people off. That happens. Uh, and you'll get a memo or you get communicated and you know that when they tell you that, by the time you get the memo, plans have already been made. Okay? You weren't on the inside scoop. But this literally is God bringing us on the inside scoop. And I've, I've been in a large corporation where uh, before they made the plans, they called me in and said, hey, we're going to be laying some people off. Uh, you're a part of the process. You're a part of helping and knowing what's going to happen in the future. And this is literally what God is doing. He's bringing his followers in and saying, here's what's going to happen. Here's the process. Here's what's going to happen in the future. And he's bringing us all in, those who, as John said, those who uh, have an ear to hear, so to speak. He says, here's what's going to happen. Here's the future. Here's what's going to occur. Here's what's going to unfold. He is revealing or unveiling his plans for us. And then the second week, we walk through what are called the church chapters, uh, which is uh, where God, in the beginning of the book of Revelation, there's seven letters that he wrote to seven churches in seven different cities. And we walk through those, and uh, each of those letters has some specificity to it that it uh, applies to, uh, as we said, some people believe that it's to a specific period or age in church history. Um, yes, it can be said. I don't know if that's specifically why God read it. Leave that up to you to talk to God about. Uh, but it also applies to specific types of churches dealing with specific types of issues, and I believe it also applies to us. Because he promises, first he addresses to the individual, to the church, or the pastor, or the leader, and then he gives them a commendation or a praise, and then he gives a rebuke or a warning, and then he gives, here's a promise of something good to come. Now, each of us, probably, if God were to come down and sit down with us and have a conversation with us, he'd probably start with, here's a, a, a commendation or praise. Something good, something I'm enjoying, something that I see great going on in your life. And then a rebuke or warning. And then he ends with a promise of good things to come specific to that situation. Now, I don't know how many, uh, many of you are married, but if you've ever sat down with your spouse or your loved one and they sit down and, and say, you know what, honey, I love when you do this. And you know when they start with that, you know there's a butt coming. They say, I love when you do this. I love the way you, you, know, you fold the clothes, you take out the trash. You, I'm talking about me. All that kind of stuff, and you get all that stuff done. But then comes the, the, the rebuke or warning. This you're not so good at. This is the area you need to grow in. This is the area you need to get a little bit better in or start doing, period. But then it comes with the, the, the promise of good things. And when you do that, Oh, all these great things, wonderful things. It makes me so happy. And that's, that's what Jesus does. He sits down with the church and he says, hey, here's a commendation of praise. You guys are doing this right. You guys are doing this wonderful. And we looked at there was one church he had nothing good to say about. Then he comes back with a rebuke or a warning. Hey, but you're lagging in this area. And then he says a promise of good thing. And it was tied. The promise of good thing was tied to each individual church's situation. And after that, we looked at Last week, uh, the worship chapters, as John appeared in heaven, and, 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 and when many people teach, and I've heard many people, and you guys have probably read and heard many people talk about the book of Revelation, when they teach this chapter, they focus on a lot of who are these creatures and who are these elders, and we talked about that a little bit, but the real important thing is the worship that takes place. Because John describes what he sees. He describes the creatures. He describes the elders. He describes the throne room. But he goes into a lot of detail describing the worship that is taking place. And you guys that were here last week, remember, we had this side say, you guys are the four living beasts. And this side, you guys are the 24 elders. And every time the four living beasts would, would give praise and honor and glory to God, then the 24 elders would basically take their crown, throw it down at the feet of God, and just begin to worship him. 
as if to say, yes, this crown is mine, and it, it, it signifies that I'm royalty and I'm ruling, but they would throw it down, basically signifying that everything I have, this crown means nothing to me compared to worshiping you for who you are. And there was all this worship going on. Now, before we go on, I, I told you guys when we started this series that we would take a couple of opportunities as they come up to, you know, answer some questions. So now, I'm going to ask Scott to come up here and take the mic and uh, wherever it is and ask you guys, I know this is kind of on the spot, if there are any questions. If not, believe me, I already have one that uh, was on. And if you don't want to yell it out, whisper it to Scott and he'll <laughs> just, just go out and see. Does anyone have any questions? If you do, raise your hand. Scott will come over with the mic and uh, because we've been talking about this, and the whole idea is for everyone to kind of be able to share. This isn't just, hey, here's what Floyd thinks, or here's what Floyd... And I told you guys, there's a lot of information I did not cover, because literally, if we went chapter by chapter, it'd be 22 weeks, and literally, if we went verse by verse, it could take over a year. Uh, so if there are any questions whatsoever, I want to just take an opportunity to say, hey, we'll, we'll, we're casual, we'll take time to answer them. Don't be shy. You don't want to speak into the mic, whisper it to Scott, and he'll speak into the mic for you. All right, there you go. Where, there was three, three-thirds on the angels, right? There what? Eight, the angels. There was, you said there was three, one-third, one-third, and one-third, correct? Correct, yeah. One-third went with Lucifer, one-third is present, where did the other third go? In the end of the book of Revelation, which we'll get there, and I don't remember the chapter off the top of my head, it's either 19, 20, 21, or 22, it talks about the fact, um, Jesus Christ says that once, he says that uh, the beast, who we call the Antichrist, uh, was, and Satan were thrown into a pit where one-third of the angels had already been put. And I'll, I'll highlight it when we get there, because I don't, don't have the chapter and verse memorized, but actually... Remind me, and I'll, I'll Facebook you and give you the, the, the verse. I'll go look it up later. But at the end of Revelations, it talks about the fact that one-third of the angels were already placed in the pit. One-third were left with, with Satan. They were cast out of heaven. So what you have left is a third, and what we talked about last week is millions upon millions upon millions, John saw. Uh, that was only consisted. If one-third was kicked out of heaven and one-third is already in the pit, that was only the remaining third. Not that scripture records. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus made the statement when they were asking him, and I'm, I, I, again, I'm not, I don't memorize scripture because my Bible has a concordance, and, but Jesus was saying, they were asking him, you know, uh, they gave him an example, hey, uh, tell us about marriage, and if one person gets married and he dies, and then according to the Jewish law, then in order to preserve the name, then the brother would be a kinsman redeemer, and he would come marry her. And then they gave the example, well, he died. Then the other brother came to marry her, but he died. And they said seven brothers did that and died. Anyone ever see that movie, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Thank you. Okay. Seven, sorry, I get distracted easily. Seven brothers did that and died. And they said, well, when we get to heaven, they asked Jesus, whose wife will she be? Because she was married to seven times. And Jesus said that you're mistaken because when we get to heaven, we will be like the angels in heaven, meaning we won't be married and having intimacy, which indicates the angels don't have intimacy and procreate, if that makes sense. Did that, did that answer your question? Okay. Two-thirds of the angels rebelled against God then. That's we know one-third rebelled. The other third was put into a pit. I can't say for 100% sure that it was for rebellion, but most likely, yeah. So two-thirds rebelled and were, one was put into the pit, the other third was kicked, just kicked out with Satan. What we call demons today are basically angelic beings that no longer follow God. It would seem that way. It would seem that way. There's nothing specific that says that. But if you had the choice to rebel, then it would seem that, yeah, they were given a choice. And some chose to follow Satan. 
Anything else? Back there. Now, when Christ died, he died for men. He didn't die for the angels. So when the angels rebelled against Christ, they can't repent. They're doomed. And man will be glorified above the angels. In other words, the angels didn't want man to be glorified above them. Right? Well, when Christ died, he died specifically for the sins of man. He did not die for the sins of angelic beings. You're correct. Uh, so the repentance that we give, when he, basically the debt that we owe to God, because we all have sin in our lives, whether we like it or not, whether we think we're good or not, we all have sin in our lives. We're born with it. It's like encoded into your DNA. Nothing you can do about it. Because of that, uh, God can't have sin in his presence. And so in order to pay the debt or the penalty to remove all of that sin, Jesus Christ said, I'll be the living sacrifice that pays the debt and the penalty for all of our sins, all of our wrongdoings, all of our iniquities. And from Scripture, uh, there's nothing in Scripture that says that he died or paid the sins for angelic beings. Everything in Scripture says and reiterates that he died to pay for the penalties, the sins, the guilt, the iniquities, all of our wrongdoings of mankind. So there's nothing that says it was for angels. You're correct. Is that it? Is that it? Okay, let me throw one at you that uh, uh, people have continually asked, and that's when you're talking about the book of Revelation. They ask for a timeline. Has anyone ever heard that or looked online, tried to find a timeline for what is taking place in the book of Revelations? And here's the answer to that question. It's difficult to get a timeline because the book of Revelations is written by John, who's, you know, just a regular guy. Well, not a regular guy. He's like 90-something. But he is exposed to, and this is where it gets difficult, spiritual things. So here is John. If, you can, if your mind can grasp this, he is a human. He's used to the passing of time. He eats breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He gets tired. But now he is in a place where time does not exist. Does that make sense? God is not limited to time as we are. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The same God that is sitting here watching this service right now is the same God at the same, if you can think of it, moment sitting there watching your great-great-great-great-grandparents do whatever they did back then because they didn't have Google or Skype. But whatever they were doing, he's watching them just like he's sitting here watching us, just like he's sitting here at the same exact, and it's hard to say moment because that indicates time, that he's experiencing what our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren would, whatever they would be doing. Flying around in little Jetsons backpacks or whatever. But it, it, it's so, from John's perspective, who is used to the passage of time and tries to record things in a chronological, or as close to chronological as he can, he's experiencing things in heaven that are not bound by time. So when we look and we read this book of Revelations, we see things that are going on on earth that for the most part on earth, they kind of have a set timeline. This happens, and then this happens. And you'll read as we go through the chapters, he would say, and then this, and then I saw this, and then this happened. Problem is, when he says, I saw this in heaven, it's not bound to the same time frame as, and then this happened on earth. And that's where it gets a little bit sticky. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Uh, that being said, uh, any other questions before I move on? Going once, going twice. So, all right. Um, last week we, t we talked about uh, the scrolls. And how many of you guys have heard about the scrolls? And Jesus Christ opens these scrolls and all this stuff happens. And uh, what happens is there are seven scrolls. And that was one of the reasons we read about the, uh, the whole host of heaven. All the angels, all of them, they broke out the harps. They had a good old country down-home party. Because Jesus Christ was able to open the scrolls. Now, here's the thing. First question is, why was he the only one able? Well, we think because he's God. Second question is, what is the scroll that he was trying to open? And the third question is, the seals. Why, how come every time he opened the seal, there was some wild, crazy thing that happened? Well, here's, uh, here's the way this breaks down. Um, because before we talk about the seals, which is... Uh, the next chapter that we're going to go into, we kind of got to talk about um, who Jesus was and why he was able and all that good stuff, right? The reason why Jesus Christ was able to open the seals is because he was referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of Jesse, and he was referred to as a Lamb who had been slain. Now, before we get there, 
you have to understand that this is, this is if you're John, okay, and you had walked with Jesus Christ, that's an awesome thing in itself. And then you saw him, you know, nailed to a cross. Your best friend who you've been hanging out with, your mentor, killed, nailed to a cross, killed, dead. Pierced his side, blood and water came out. He was putting away in a tomb. You know, you had the funeral, you ate the mashed potatoes and the chicken. You, you all went back home and you said, oh, we miss him. And you mourned. And the next thing you know, he comes back, as he said he would, walking and talking to you. So now you're already blown away. Then the last time you see him, you go up to the slag dump over here where Walmart is, and you see him ascend into heaven. Now, I mean, you're already blown away because of the things he did on earth. Then you saw him die. Then he came back. You ate with him. You had a meal with him. And now, the last time you see him, he ascends into heaven. Then the next time you see him, the next time you see him, he has this appearance. And in Revelation chapter 1, we read this before, but it says, I turned. This is John talking. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now he's seeing him in a whole new way. He's seeing him dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, which indicates royalty, a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Now you see him in a way that his physical presence, is unlike anything you have ever experienced on the planet. You're already blown away by all that he's done. Now he sees him in a whole new way, but now he goes up into heaven, and the, this, the, the Jesus Christ who just appeared to him and said, take a memo, write this letter, the book of Revelations, now he sees him in an entirely different way, uh, because he says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now this man who you've seen in all these different manifestations, he sees as some kind of animal, and not just a lamb. I mean, John, you know, he was in Jerusalem. He had seen lots of lambs. There were shepherds, although he was a fisherman. There were shepherds all over the place. But now he sees this lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. It's like a Disney character gone bad. Well, he wouldn't know what Disney is, but he's looking at this, and now he's trying to behold this. Now, you got to picture what John is experiencing, because not only does he see him in this new way, look at where he sees him. He sees him in the center of the throne. It's not like he sees him walking out. He sees him in the place that is reserved for God. And there he sees this lamb that he knows as Jesus appear. Now, all that being said, all that being said, the angel asked John and said, hey, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to, to open the scroll that's going to unreveal all of these things? And he says the reason why Jesus is worthy is because, one, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the root of David, and he has triumphed. His resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection was a spiritual triumph. And he says also because he is the lamb that has been slain. Now, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, here's the thing. As the lion of the tribe of Judah, you, you've got to understand what, what John is experiencing. John's history, everything that John has gone through, the way he was raised, tells him that God is God. He doesn't believe there's any other thing. He knows that God is God. Okay? As God the way he's been raised, all of his life experiences tell him that everything on the planet belongs to God. Are you with me so far? Everything on the planet belongs to God. He is the creator of all things. All things are his. But as John grows up, he sees these other cultures and countries and whatever that don't believe in God. They follow other gods. They don't necessarily believe that God is God. They have these, these idols of stone and wood and metal and trees and stuff that they worship. And John's thinking, well, these are all things that God created. Now, John also knows, because of his Jewish upbringing, that if Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, then he is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel and also the rightful heir to the throne of God. That's, that's what the entire Old Testament talks about, the fact that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the one who is 
uh, not only the rightful ruler of Israel, but the rightful ruler of all that is God's. He's like heir to the throne, okay? All of his teaching tells him that. Everything he knows tells him that. Jesus Christ is heir to the throne. Here's a problem. He's only heir to the throne of everything that God owns and the people who are God's people. Okay? There are people all over the planet then, and there are people all over the planet now. They don't believe in God. They don't know God. They refuse to acknowledge God. So technically, he's not ruler over them. Because if you're ruling over people who don't want to be ruled by you, what we call it is a dictatorship. When you force your rule on other people, isn't that what we call it? And we see it all over, you know, lots of countries where someone steps in and says, I'm taking over by force, whether you want me to or not. I've got the hardest hammer. I've got the biggest gun. I am now the ruler. Okay? So here's, here's all that's going to happen. Um, Jesus Christ is revealing this book to show that. He's giving a last opportunity to say, I am going to step in as the rightful ruler, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and I am going to take my rightful place on the throne of God. And since the earth is God's, my rightful rule over the earth. And this is the last ditch opportunity for all of you who still say, well, we don't believe you're the ruler, we don't acknowledge you as a ruler, to get with the program. Because if you don't, that's okay. But then I am going to ask you to leave my kingdom. And that's where hell comes in. Because he's going to say, hey, there is a place reserved where you can be without me and not under my rule. And that's where it is. And you won't have me to deal with. You won't have my love. You won't have God's grace. You won't have God's presence. But for everyone else who says, okay, we already acknowledge and we know and we're willing to to step in during this whole trial that we call the tribulation, uh, he says, hey, this is an opportunity for you to step in and say, yeah, you know what? Wow, we didn't know or we didn't believe or we were putting you on hold, but now we're willing to accept and believe that you truly are God, you are the rightful ruler. So as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the rightful ruler of the people of Israel and God's people and all that is God's, he has the right to open this scroll. Does that make sense? All right, uh, the reason they call him the Lion of the Tribe of Judah is because when Jacob, you guys remember Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, they had all these 12 tribes, and uh, Jacob made this prediction about his 12 sons, and this is what he said in Genesis chapter 49. He said, you are a lion's club, and he was talking to Judah, okay? You are a lion's club, O Judah. You return, you return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter was the thing that when it was passed to you, you knew, I am now the ruling one. It has now been passed to me, so I now rule. And this is back when it was just a family of 12 sons and their uh, children, uh, before it was a full-blown nation. And Jacob was making the prediction that the scepter, the rulership over the people of Israel and all of God's people, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. So he was basically making a prediction that it, the, the rulership of all of God's people will continue to be with the house or tribe or children of Judah. And so when we're sitting in heaven, he says that Jesus Christ is the lion or the fierce ruler, lion, you know, king of the jungle, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, he also calls him the lamb that was slain because as a lamb, he was the atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind. As, as, as a lamb, and it had to do with Jewish history, whenever a sin was committed, they would take a, a, a lamb and they would make an offering. They would basically say, you know what, I did wrong. And we do the same thing today. When we come home, ladies, with flowers out of the blue, we did something. It may not be bad. We come home with a new car, we blew it. But everything, everything that, that they did wrong, they would make an offering to atone for their sins. And in the same way... Rather than have you atone and you atone and you atone and you atone, and we have to keep doing it because the sin is still there, God said, you know what? I'll send my son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, and he will be the lamb 
And because he sits outside of time, he can be the lamb for our great-great-grandparents, he can be the lamb for us, and he can be the lamb for our great-great-grandchildren. As an eternal being, he can be the eternal sacrifice for all of our sins. And that's what he was. And he paid the price because the penalty, the wages, Romans says that the wages or the penalty for our sin is death. We all should have died for our sins. And for some of us, we should have died over and over and over and over and over again. But Jesus Christ said, you know what, I'll pay that price so that you don't have to. Uh, And in 1 Corinthians 6.20, it says, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. And in 7.23, you were bought at a price, do not become the slaves of men. And the reality is, is that Jesus literally paid for us. He he paid the price. He, He wrote the check that said, you are now good, your debt is paid. And then that's why Paul tells, uh, when he was talking to the church in Corinth, he was saying, you know what, what you guys are going through, don't go off and just give your body to anyone. Don't go off and abuse your body because Jesus Christ paid too much for it. He did. And that's why, ladies and fellows, when you go out and there's a guy or a girl who wants to hook up with you, that's why you can tell them, you can't afford me. Too high a price. You, You just can't get there. And Jesus Christ tells him that, you know what, the price that I paid for you, there's no one else, nothing else on the planet, nothing else that we can do or anyone else can do to meet that price. Then in uh, Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he wrote, we all like sheep have gone astray. Now here's the thing, even the people who don't believe in God, even the people who don't acknowledge his presence, even the people that say, you know what, I don't need God because I'm a good person. I don't need, you know, this thing called Christianity because it's just a crutch. Even all of those people, God wants them with him. He wants to be in relationship with them. But Isaiah said that even them and all of us, we all, every single one like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And that's why the largest, largest, largest growing religion on the planet right now it's not Christianity, it's not Muslim, it's selfism. It's the belief that, you know what, all I need is me, all I'll worship is me, and all I'll put stock in is me, and then I'll be okay. It's also the biggest lie on the planet. But then he goes on and he says, each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, meaning Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And John, uh, John the apostle, writes of what John the Baptist said. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As the Lamb of God, and as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus was the only one who was worthy, and the word worthy literally means who was able to... Um, who was able to open. He was the only one worthy to open the scroll. Now, here's the thing about the scroll, okay? And when many of you, because I know this happened to me, when you think of the scroll, you probably have a a bunch of ideas of what it already looks like. Uh, The word that's used there is the word biblion, where we get the word Bible from, and it literally means a small book uh, or a scroll. And when you read this in the um, NIV, it uses the word scroll. In the King James, it uses the word book. In the Amplified, it uses the word scroll with book in parentheses. The indication is that this writing, whatever it was, this scroll, was not just some supernatural thing that you opened it up and poof, stuff happened. It, it indicates that there was instructions that were written on this scroll. There was stuff detailed on it. Now, in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, it's even on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. It's the same word that Jesus Christ uses. Write on the scroll, this small book or, or, or this writing, instructions for people so that the thinking that most people have is that the scroll had nothing on it, it was just a legal document, or some people even say it was the title deed to the earth. Well, that's possible, but it was more likely that it had instructions and detailed information, which is why each time a seal was broken, 
then something was done. Now, here's the question about the seals. Um, the seal is probably not like what most of us think. How many of you guys have, 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 have well, let me do this, let me say this. Um, it was probably not the wax seal. How many of you guys have uh, seen these little stamps, you put a rubber seal on it, you melt the wax and you put a seal on it? It was not that, okay? Although in Jesus' day, when he was put in a tomb, that's what was used to seal the tomb. They would melt wax over something, and they would take a, a, a stamp or something like that, put it on there, so you would have this impression. And if the seal were broken, then you would know that someone had broken the seal. They would put it on letters, uh, organizations, or, or, or royalty would use it, so that you would know when you got the letter or whatever it was, that no one's looked at it yet because the seal has not been broken. Now, when they talk about the seal in Revelations, they talk about the seal being opened, not broken. So it's likely, again, I don't know for sure because I wasn't there, it's likely that it was not that type of seal. It's also likely that it's not the type of seal that many of us think of when we hear the word seal, the little tiny cute baby seals, because that would make eternal enemies with SPCA and PETA and all that stuff if they were opening up seals, maybe on the History Channel. But it's also not the Singer Seal. How many of you guys know who that is? Is anybody? A couple people? Okay, good. Probably not him. Instead, it was likely a seal that was used to bind writings. And what likely happened, and it's hard to, to picture this, and no matter where you go on the Internet, you'll find... If you go to 10 different places, you'll find 10 different pictures or, or thinkings of, of what it was like. But as best as I can tell, and I'm not saying I'm 100% right because I wasn't there, it was likely uh, the way they used to do it is they would start rolling the scroll, and then it would tie a seal around it, and then it would roll it some more and tie another seal, and roll it some more and tie another seal. And it's likely that they did that seven times so that every time a seal was open part of the scroll was exposed with instructions saying, now do this, or now this would occur. And then the next seal was opened and instructions saying, now do this, and this would occur, which is why when we, as we're about to jump in, you open it and you see every time a seal was open, something specific would happen. And it wouldn't happen until the seal was open, revealing, here's the thing that's going to take place. Does that make sense? All right, that being said, very long intro. We're going to jump into... Uh, Turn to Revelation chapter 6. If you have a Bible, if you don't, there's one underneath your seat, in front of you, beside you, left or right of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and we will get one for you. Um, it's better if you do so that you can follow along and you can see I'm not making this stuff up. All right, now I'm going to jump through this really quickly so we can walk through these seals. And in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, it says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So the first thing you have happening is the first seal is opened, and one of the four living creatures commands that conquest occurred. Now, this conquest is not, all, not, not, not all-out war yet. What's released, and some say it's judgments that are being released, depending on however you want to interpret it, but what's released is a desire to take over, overcome, manipulate, and overpower each other, men, to conquer. It's not the desire for war. You're going to see that later. It's the desire for uh, political conquest, the desire for financial conquest, the desire for uh, sexual conquest. All of these innate natures that we have in us, those desires are escalated when this seal is broken. Now, some say that that literally could be the first writer because he has a crown, could be the Antichrist. Um, I don't know. I don't see anything in Scripture that says it is. I don't see anything in Scripture that says it's not, so I can't say for sure. Uh, next verse, verse 3. When the Lamb opened the seal... I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. Now what happens is the next seal is open, the next living creature gives a command, and the greed, the desire to overcome, the desire to control, manipulate, and be in authority, 
With that comes physical violence. Now is when you see wars starting to escalate. Now is when you see robbery starting to escalate. Now is when you see rapes starting to escalate. Now is when you see the physical manifestation of those desires to conquer one another on an individual level, on an organizational level, and on a, of course, national level, countries against countries. Now that comes to physical manifestations, wars, robberies, me not just desiring to want to take what's yours and have it for myself, me physically going to do it. And then the third seal, in verse 5, when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, this is a complex uh, verse because, first, the natural result of war, increased robberies, uh, of, 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 of the desire to conquer us, uh, all these people, the natural result of that is economic and financial collapse. One country trying to take over another, long-held wars, uh, one company trying to take over another, people trying to take over each other. The thing that's difficult is because it talks about the wheat and the barley and, and how much you would have to pay for that stuff. It indicates that there is, there's this, this, this level where uh, if they were saying it today, it would say, you know, bread and donuts. And if you can imagine, depending upon where you come from, for some people, a day's wages, if you think of a year's wages on average at being 40000 or 50000 or 25000 or whatever, multiply that out, and a day's wage is anywhere from $100, $300 for bread, for wheat. If you think about uh, in Haiti, and you guys remember the, 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 the tragedy, and, and, and after the fact, when all of these countries went in, they were issuing people, you know, not like sandwiches and lunches, they were issuing people grain and, and different types of things that they could go home and flour that they can go home and make different things from. And the problem was that on the black market, you would think, how much, and I have no idea, how much is a, like a pound of flour? Anyone know? All right, honey, how much? Three to four dollars. Imagine that going for two to three hundred dollars because it's not available or because it's all there is. Now, there is, it does talk about do, do not harm the, uh, the, the olive oil and the wine. And when most people look at this, do not damage the oil and the wine. Most people look at this and they, and they come to one or two conclusions. One is, that it's saying, do not harmage the oil and the wine, because it's saying that the rich will stay rich. Oil and wine um, are typically symbols that are sometimes used to indicate the wealthy. And if you look through uh, the Old Testament, you look through even some of Jesus' stories, wine and oil are associated with the wealthy. That could be, don't know if that's true or not. I tend to lean towards another, another, another avenue, which oil and wine are also associated with people who follow God. Oil typically in the Bible means the anointed people. They would pour olive oil on people as a sign of anointing. And wine is associated with the blood of Christ. Now you're going to see the 144,000 uh, in the next chapter that God sets aside. And it's possible, again, you go back and pray and say, God, what does this really mean? I don't have a definitive answer because it doesn't give us a definitive answer. I lean towards this. It's possible that it's referring to that those 144,000 are not impacted by all that's going on. And we'll get to the 144,000 in a minute. Now, uh, the fourth seal. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, verse 7, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, this is the natural um, result uh, of all that stuff. Actually, let me show you something real quick. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 4 to 5, it says, However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving to you. This is, again, why I lean towards um, it not necessarily being that the wealth are staying wealthy. Because it's indicating that uh, in the Old Testament, God told, he told the people that you're always going to have poor people, okay? They're going to be there. But they should not stay poor because of all I am blessing you with. 
I'm going to give you so much stuff that the poorest among you should be able to eat. Shouldn't be a hungry month among you. Now, here's the thing. Jesus Christ told them, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Jesus Christ said that when it comes to the poor, yeah, they're always going to be there. But anytime you want, you can put a stop to the hungry. You can put a stop to the starving. You can put a stop to the people that are poor. Anytime you want, anytime that you decide to step up and be the church, and I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone, uh, we as a congregation have been very, 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 very generous. Uh, that's one of our core values, extreme generosity and reaching out and helping people in need. But he tells us that anytime we want, all the things that we, we, we see and the starving or whatever, anytime we want, we, that, that indicates we have the desire to do something about it. Anytime we want, we can put a stop to the poor. Sorry, let me get back on track. So in the seventh seal, he talks about the result of greed, war, economic collapse, and there's widespread death. There's widespread plague and pestilence. And here's the thing. This is, this is, this is uh, in verse 8. Or, yeah, verse 8. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. That's right. It was named Death. Uh, drop down, it says, they were given power over the fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, sword, famine, and plague kill one-fourth of the population of the earth. One-fourth, now, I don't know when this is going to occur, but approximately right now, there's some 6.8 billion people on the planet. Okay? So, whatever one-fourth of that is, one point, yada, 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 billion people killed by plague and famine and wild beasts. Of course, if you have wars going on, economic collapse, you're going to have just mayhem. You've got bodies in the street. That's going to lead to plague and pestilence. And, and think about this. One pastor said, and I don't know if this is true, but it was on the Internet. So if it was on the Internet, it's <laughs> true. Okay, so one pastor said that one-fourth, for that to happen, one-fourth of the planet, that means that all of... North America, all of South America, and a good portion of Europe. Imagine all the people there dead. And that would be the equivalent of one-fourth of the population being killed. Now, not only does that indicate that, but it also indicates that this is on a global scale. It's not, there are no neutral countries. There are no places on the planet that are not impacted by this. It goes on and says, uh, on the fifth seal, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer till the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Now, this is kind of crucial because these are martyrs. These are people that not just uh, the word witness literally is the word mature, where we get the word martyrs from. These aren't people who were just followers of Jesus Christ. These are people that were going out and living their lives for him and telling other people about him, and because of it, they lost their lives. These were people who were going into homes and going into their workplace and going into neighborhoods and going into coffee shops and sitting down with people and say, hey, do you know how much Jesus Christ loves you? Do you know that he died for you? They were engaging in these discussions, the discussions that today it's politically incorrect to start. And they were covered with white robes, which indicates God's purity, because God said, you know what, you, you, you were sacrificed. Here's the thing also, it says that it wasn't going to end because they were saying how long and he was saying it's not over yet. More of you will be martyred. More of you are going to be killed. More people who go out and give their lives for Jesus Christ are going to be killed for doing so. Now it kind of makes me wonder for our generation and our culture, we don't have a good deal of martyrs today. Not in this country. And I'm not being critical, I'm just being honest. We don't have a lot of people who are willing to go into their workplace, their home, their school, or someplace where Christ is not known and go about making him known. 
just not politically correct. It's not a good thing to do. And I'm not telling you to stand up in your workplace on Monday and start saying, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus, because it may not be appropriate. But there are times and places where it definitely is appropriate. And I've said this before. The thing that gets me the most, you know what? You, I understand, we, especially depending upon where you work, it may not be appropriate to engage in that level of conversation. But I said this before, if you're standing in the grocery store, and someone in line says, hey, I see you have a cross on, or I notice you have a Bible or something like that. Where do you go to church? And you ignore them. You ignore someone trying to reach out and find out about your church, your relationship with God, and you just kind of walk away because you feel uncomfortable. That's not cool at all. And there's going to be a time where we're sitting in heaven, and we're going to be sitting around with people who, who lost their lives for going into schools, people who lost their lives for going into countries where they will kill you for talking about it. Speaking of which, um, the missionary that we support in China, and I won't say her name because this is being recorded, uh, she'll be with us in August, and she's going to share a little bit about uh, what's going on and the journey that God continually has her on. So uh, I think it's the weekend of August 14, 15, somewhere around there. Feel free to come in, invite your friends to join us for that. But when we're sitting around in heaven with people who have given their lives and they look at us and say, oh, what hardships did you go through? Well, we had to sit through Pastor Floyd's extremely long sermon on Revelation. That doesn't count. Well, we had to sit, it was hot because we only had a little small AC unit. That doesn't count. What are we going to be able to say, hey, this is what I did for you, God. This is what I gave for you, and this is what I gave up. For you. Now, in verse uh, 12 through 17, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars of the sky filled the earth as late figs dropped from the fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man, hitting caves and among the rocks of the mountains, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now this is pretty cool because uh, when the sixth seal is open, um, and actually the seventh seal isn't opened until chapter 8, and we'll get to that next week. But when the sixth seal is opened, there is this earthly response, okay, from, from all of creation. And then there is this human response from mankind. And the, the, the creation response is uh, that you see, um, and John says, I saw stars falling. Now, this is my opinion, I'm telling you my opinion. I don't think they were literally stars as we know them, like the sun, because if they were, they would destroy the earth. But if you look throughout scripture, the word stars was used for a lot of celestial entities, comets, meteors, those type of things. So it's likely that whether they're meteors or whether they're asteroids, some people say that volcanoes, uh, volcanoes are exploding and then big chunks of rock are falling. Whatever they are, John sees them coming from heaven. He sees them falling out of the sky to earth. The earthquakes are happening, and, and he sees the, uh, the moon turn red and the sun turn black, and some people say that is because of volcanic... How many remember that, that volcano in, where was it, Greenland, Iceland? I didn't even know there were people there. But apparently, this, this volcano blew up, and, and for, what was it, a week or so, there was so much ash covering the sky that planes on, I think, two to three continents were grounded. And so some people say that that's what turns the sun black. It's not the sun physically turning black, because if it did, it would, be a, uh, it would be because it would ceased to be the fiery thing that we know it is, so we would freeze to death, like almost instantly. So it's unlikely that that's what happened. It's more likely, again, my opinion, that the ash covered it, uh, and the same with the moon. But th that's what he sees, and, and this is the result of creation, all of creation reacting to God's presence. Now, here's the thing. Uh, in the book of uh, Colossians, chapter 1, Paul is writing to a church in Colossae, and he tells them, for it was in him, meaning Jesus Christ, that all things were created. He's telling him that literally, literally, everything that we see was created in Jesus Christ, in heaven and on earth, things seen and things unseen, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, 
all things were created and exist through him by his service, intervention, and in and for him. And he himself existed before all things, and in him all things consist. There are some people, and I forget the, the, the name of the religion, that literally believe that the only reason we are all here is because God is thinking of us. And if God were to cease thinking of us, then we would cease to exist because it is his, this is what they believe. It is his very thought process that is holding us together. Now, I wouldn't go that far. But I would say, and Jesus Christ said, how many remember when he said, if you don't worship me, then the rocks will cry out. How many remember that when he was crucified, there was a huge earthquake that creation itself is aware of and acknowledges. And, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, the rocks are sentient beings and that they have thoughts, but they are aware of the sovereignty of God. And they react to the sovereignty of God. The bad thing is man is the only one who sometimes chooses not to, to disavow the sovereignty of God. And the human response is that the people walk away and they refuse to acknowledge God's presence. They refuse to acknowledge, they have knowledge that only God, the wrath of the Lamb, only God could create what we are seeing now on a global scale. But they still refuse. They would rather, it is better to hide from God than to acknowledge God. And I'm going to ask the band to come up as I, I highlight uh, chapter 7. The most important thing, and I'll read this to you quickly. John sees a lot going on, but then in verse 4 of chapter 7, he says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, people that God had sealed, and it says 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then it goes on and it lists from each of the tribes. And he says, After look, after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then it says, All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures. And again, and we, we see this over and over throughout the book of Revelations, where all the heavenly hosts, in verse 11, all the angels were standing around. They fell down on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In verse 14, it says that these, these, these people in white robes, they are they who have come out of the great tribulation. These are the people who are on earth at that time that say, you know what, I acknowledge that God is real. That say that, you know, if God is willing to go to this much to be in relationship with me, then I'm willing to have him as a part of my life for all eternity. And it says, therefore, these people, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There's this picture of these, these, these people that God goes down, and he, he seals, puts a seal on him. And if you look through chapter uh, 14 of Revelations, it says what that seal is, and he seals them with his name. And he gives a, a, a qualification for them, and there are lots of denominations out there that say, we are the 144,000. Well, first of all, they're all male. Second of all, they're all virgins. Rules out a whole lot of people. And they're the ones who have chosen, it says in chapter 14, to follow God, and he purchased them. And they're from the tribe of Israel. And again, God sends out 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams, if you will, to go out and evangelize the world in the midst of explosions and earthquakes and, and war and economic collapse and people killing one another and murdering one another and raping one another. He sends people out to go and just grab them by the hand and say, you know what? God loves you. He has more in store for you than this. And up in heaven, it says that you see these people that come out of that tribulation that are killed for their testimony and, and for saying, I believe, I'll accept Jesus Christ. And they get to spend an eternity with God, worshiping him, praising him. Now, it says never will they hunger, never will they thirst. I, this is me. I would say that never will they feel the pain of rejection. Never will we feel the hurt of loneliness. 
Never will we feel like we never measure up to someone else's standard. Because God looks at us and says, you know what? I love you so much. Regardless of what you're going through, regardless of who says you don't fit their standard, regardless of how many jobs you've lost or how many relationships you've been in or, 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 or the medical traumas that you're still trying to make your way through, he says, I love you so much that I'm going to die for you. And to those who haven't yet accepted him, this is what this book is all about. Him saying, I love you so much that I'm going to shake the very bowels of the planet just so you can know that I love you. And throughout this book, I said before, at one point he sends an angel just flying all over the globe, just saying that Jesus loves you, God loves you. The heart of this book is God revealing the fact that he loves us. Yeah, there's earthquakes, yeah, there's all kind of stuff going on, but the heart of this book is the fact that Jesus loves us enough to die for us and do whatever it takes to get to the one he loves. And the question for us is, who will we share that with? Is there someone in your home, someone in your school, someone in your workplace that is just, is just wanting to know that there's someone out there who loves them unconditionally? Regardless of what they've been through, regardless about who rejected them, regardless about whether or not they feel like they measure up to someone else's standard. And I don't know where all of you work, I don't know where all of you live, but I can probably say that there was someone in your community or workplace that would just love to know what God is willing to go through for them. And the question is, will we share that with them? I'm going to ask you to stand and say a quick prayer before we enter into this time of worship. Just bow your heads for a minute. God, we are extremely, extremely blessed. Even though at times it may not look like it because of our financial situation or because of a physical ailment that, that we can't see a way out of or because of a friend or a family member who, who hurt us or wounded us so deeply that we've been carrying around the scars for years. But we are so blessed because you don't look at any of that. You don't look at our past. You don't look at the mistakes we made. You don't even look at the mistakes that you know we're going to make in the future, the wrong choices we made in the past, the ones we might make walking out of this door. You look at us and you say, there's someone who I love with a never-ending love. And that you're willing to rip this planet apart just to get to them. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to share that with someone this week. That, that when the time is right and when the place is right, that we would be willing to have the awkward conversation with someone that says, you know what? God loves you in a way that you cannot even begin to imagine. And God, we know there are people out there who are desperate to hear this message. And it's not about bringing them into this church or into this building, but into your family, into relationship with you. And we know that there are people out there, Lord, who are thinking about that right now and trying to figure out what they have to do or how hard they have to work or where they need to go or what they need to say in order to earn your love. God, give us the courage to share with them that you've already paid that debt. And all they need to do is receive you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you for looking at us in a way that others won't and sometimes can't. 
Thank you for accepting us with all of our pain, all of our hurt, all of our wrongdoing. Thank you for paying that debt, not just for once, but once and for all. Thank you for accepting us into your family. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. The word says, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you for giving that to us, to dwell within us. Thank you for being there at times when it seems like no one else will be or would be. Thank you for being a God who truly loves us unconditionally. Who's willing to give up everything that you have for all of who we are. For that, we give you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys again. Uh, Hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your Sunday.